Welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Waylon Wong. And I'm Sean Hildner. Today on the show, we talk to a company that is both a nonprofit and a tech startup, but it doesn't really fit into either category. Like, it's a graduate of Y Combinator, which has produced tech companies like Airbnb and Dropbox, but it's also a nonprofit with a very specific mission, and that is providing a free tool for people to file Chapter 7 personal bankruptcy. As you'll hear on the show, Chapter 7 is a last resort for people who are already being crushed by other predatory aspects of the American economic system, like payday loans and medical debt. The problem that Upsolve is tackling is that for someone who's low income, hiring a lawyer for this process is completely out of the question. Today, Waylon sits down with Mark Hansen, co-founder and chief technology officer of Upsolve. You'll hear about where they fit in and don't fit in with the nonprofit and startup worlds and why Mark feels uncomfortable with Upsolve being categorized as a social good tech company. We're going to start with Mark's journey into the murky world of government technology and contracts. Before getting into programming, I was actually trying to go into architecture and I was interested in the built environment and logistics of refugee resettlement. Uh, And so I was working with an architectural firm in New Jersey and we were working on this project. I remember hearing one of the architects like yelling on the phone because they were talking to the general contractor. I remember afterwards they were saying like, gosh, like every time, like I hate working with them. And I'm like, if they're always causing overruns, if they're always causing all these problems in government, like how do they keep getting hired? And that kind of just opened my eyes to the procurement process. And around the same time, the federal government launched healthcare.gov and that kind of had that stumbling rollout. And that was also kind of a procurement failure. And it was interesting to think like, you know, there's this kind of like pipeline before we even get to the product that's actually leading to failure. It was kind of this insider baseball game with like construction contractors knowing how to do bids in a certain way. And I just was like really interested in trying to break up that game. Obviously, it was like super hard and it's still a problem and I didn't get a solution going for that. But it kind of got me started thinking about government technology and the product building processes within local, state, federal government. Mark spent some time in the Bay Area, then moved to New York City, where he met his co-founders, Rohan Pavaluri and Jonathan Petz. They were already working on Upsolve. At the time, I was trying to build these kind of automated call centers, essentially, like 311-211 in New Jersey. I was basically running up against the procurement process and I was pretty fried out from that sales process with government. And I stumbled into Rohan and Jonathan who had put together a type form. They had like a basic prototype of uh, tackling the bankruptcy, like social safety net. And I was trying to do the screening tool for like all these different, you know, safety nets, but I actually hadn't really come across bankruptcy. One day they had some mugs that they got sent as gifts from their, one of their users And I was blown away. I was like, no one from city government is going to ever mail me a mug. Like, this is wild. I was about to do a pilot in Jersey City. And I was like, yeah, no, no one's getting me a mug. I'm I'm in. Um, And yeah, so I just started working with Rohan and Jonathan. What was it about the topic of personal bankruptcy in particular that you found intriguing beyond the fact that their user sent them a cool mug? It was just the dramatic effect it can have on a person's life. I mean, to give you some examples, like one person had a 399% interest rate on a loan from a payday lender, right? That is insane that that's not disallowed through regulation in some way. So you're seeing folks like that that are just like multiple layers of systems have failed them. And when someone's filing bankruptcy, they're getting a discharge of all that debt and they're able to participate in society and they're able to like 
have happiness again. Actually, when I joined Upsolve, I had two maxed out credit cards and I was paying my rent on like Venmo and I was so stressed and I'm an able-bodied person. You know, there's people who have injuries and they can't get back to work. You know, there's teachers, there's frontline healthcare workers, could be someone that's like, they're living out of a car, really in a lot of stress and they're just afraid to talk about it. And like, that's part of it too, is it's really hard to talk about. Our society just haven't set up systems for them to continue living in basic comfort. So that moved me personally, just the level of impact because it can be discharging tens of thousands of dollars of debt. And then the other piece of it for me, kind of going back to my maybe more combative side <laughs> is that I, you know, see these predatory payday lenders and I'm like, screw them. I think part of me was, had this like kind of fantasy of like, could there be a, a day where we help so many people discharge debts from predatory lenders that it kind of forces them to correct their practices in some way. Can you briefly explain what Upsolve does? We make a self-service tool you can use on a desktop or a phone that will guide you through the entire process of filing Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Through that experience, you're going to learn a lot about bankruptcy. You're going to learn a lot about what other ways you can you know, handle debt. And it's going to be there the whole way through, up to the point you, know, you file with the court, all the way through until your final meeting with the trustee. And, you know, to the point that you get your discharge letter. And just in terms of Bankruptcy 101, to discharge means that the debt just disappears or is it more complicated than that? Basically, when you file, you give a list of all the creditors that you have and the court will send out notices to all of them saying that you have filed bankruptcy and that the debt's relieved. Who are the people for whom Chapter 7 bankruptcy makes a lot of sense? And I, I realize it is a last resort type of tool, but even as a last resort, who does it usually benefit the most? I think the people who benefit the most from our tool are people who have some sort of medical expense and maybe they didn't have insurance or they kind of fall out after an accident, recover from it, but you lost your job. And now you have that medical debt and you don't have a way to pay that off. You know, without a tool like Upsolve, what would be the usual process and the problems that would come along with trying to do this? So a large majority of the people we help or that use our tool, they wouldn't have filed bankruptcy. They couldn't have. Typically, you'd hire an attorney that would cost you $1,500 to $2,000. A lot of people just wouldn't file bankruptcy. They just stay trapped in debt. Generational poverty, that debt carries on maybe to their, their family in other ways and other expenses. So a lot of people just don't file. A lot of people don't even realize they could do this on their own. They just assume you need an attorney to do it. If they were to, if they were to try to do it on their own, then you're kind of navigating a bunch of government websites. You're trying to figure out what forms you need to include. The bankruptcy paperwork is kind of like also used by businesses. So you're trying to like parse out like, is this related to me, my case? Should I do chapter 13? Should I do chapter seven? A lot of attorneys will push people into chapter 13 because there's an incentive to do so. So someone who uses Upsolve, they file through your self-service tool. And then what kind of interaction follows with the court system? Do they ever have to appear in person or have like a phone call or a meeting? Or do they just get a letter in the mail later after they file? Basically, they compile all of their paperwork. They file it with the court. They get a date for a meeting that they have to have with the trustee. The trustee, who is this kind of representative, this kind of middle person between the creditors and the person filing, you get scheduled a meeting. It, it takes like five minutes. 
I was just sitting in a waiting room essentially. And like, they just start calling everybody, you know, up and they just ask, you know, a few little questions here and there and boom, you know, you're good. It's not some like scary thing where you're like sitting at a conference table and they're grilling you about your finances and you have to dress up and stuff. It's like, go- like going to the DMV or something. Oh, absolutely. It's not adversarial. This is not a court case. It's very administrative. If you don't have a physical address, if you're unhoused or living in your car, can you still do this? Like, how do they know to reach you to show up for the meeting? That's actually something we're working through right now. The courts actually don't handle homelessness well. There is this expectation for a permanent address. And I think that's also like this whole system is is somewhat designed around the concept of an attorney being involved in the process. We just ask if there's any place that they put as like a mailing address, PO box, any friend, family, someone that can just like take mail for them. We've recently been talking about this a lot to see if like maybe we can even accept mail for people, give them the notices, like almost scan it, send them back something. That way people just don't have to worry about it. So that's how personal bankruptcy works for people that Upsolve is hoping to reach. The tool is completely free for them to use. So you might be wondering, how does Upsolve make any money? We started out with this free tool. The tool is focused on people that are like low asset, no or low income. But if you have you know, a personal injury case, if you have a home, if you're a higher income, there is going to be complexities to your case that you would want to consult like an attorney about and probably have them guide you through that process. So we kind of understand the limitations of the tool and there's different points where it will say this tool is not a good fit for you. And at that point we offer to match them with attorneys and we've like vetted some firms and we have this like matching service basically where they can say like, I want to have a free, you know, evaluation consultation with an attorney and we'll connect them to, to one. And the attorneys will uh, usually pay for those matches. You have been largely funded by grants, right? Because you're a nonprofit mm-hmm. and you don't charge for your tool. Yeah, exactly. The earliest funding came from the Legal Services Corporation, which is funded by the U.S. government. They have a technology grant that they give out to brick and mortar legal aid. And we have been working with Philadelphia Legal Aid. And that was kind of how this thing got its, its earliest validation and funding for sure. Can you talk about the decision between nonprofit versus B Corp and how you thought about that as you were building the company and how you wanted to structure it? We want the government, we want individuals, everyone to see that our intentions is to not extract as much money out of people. So there's a kind of defensibility that comes from being a nonprofit because this is kind of a murky regulatory space. There's an entire discussion about like what is legal advice and who is authorized to give legal advice. Can software give you legal advice? The line is super murky. For me, what's really interesting about being a nonprofit is that there is no equity. Like, oh my God, we don't have to have conversations about, is it 0.5 or a percent? It doesn't matter. Like this evaluation of people's worth, we don't even have to think about it. It's like we all do the work because it needs to be done. We all give ourselves a salary. We're not rich here. We filter out a lot of people who have that intention. What's the financial interest here for me? And how can I use this moment to like, you know, get that money back? We're not attracting people that have that mindset. So I think there's a long-term cultural healthiness being a nonprofit. But that said, the legal structure of your organization does not stop abuse. Your organization's culture stops abuse. Before Upsolve, when I was doing the 301-211 system, I made that as a C-corporation because I needed to give myself the option to raise money 
because I knew that Google Sidewalk Labs was pitching internally a tool that was very similar to what I built. And I didn't have the money to go up against them. I maxed out two of my credit cards trying to like do sales to government. And they can operate with losses for years. My intention there was like, okay, I need to be able to survive. I don't think a structure will insulate you from abuse. I think that is a cultural thing. Though I do think there are some benefits to the nonprofit structure. I do really like it. And like for us, like we have to be mindful of that. We can't become rich, but we could obviously leverage the networks we have or the data we have or like all these things. Like it just takes a culture to say that's unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, certainly nonprofits, especially at a certain size, it is possible to get like very well compensated (laughs) running particularly large nonprofits. I imagine it's much harder to do in your group of eight, Um, but that's not to say you shouldn't be thinking about these things now, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. To me, the best way that we can keep ourselves focused and to not get distracted by any of these others kind of self-indulgent practices is just to always be coming back every week to the metrics dashboard and saying, have we helped more people this week than last week? If our daily actions aren't in line with that goal, then it's not something we should be doing. How did you decide to do Y Combinator? I guess I've been straddling kind of two worlds emotionally. I align with a lot of you know activists and community and political organizations, but I really admire the kind of ruthlessness of the tech industry to like create organizations of scale and like the practices that they use to get there. We're a nonprofit, but doesn't mean we shouldn't be striving for a scale of impact. So we applied and they let us in, funny enough, <laughs> which is interesting. Like there's no equity exchange. They're just really interested in seeing what we're doing. And I got to say, like, it was hard. It was definitely a culture shock. That's actually when we started generating revenue. Before then, I was like, donations, we are not taking money. But they had a good point, which was they wanted to see us be self-sustaining. Just like investors can pull you in certain directions, foundations can pull you in certain directions. They wanted us to be able to stand on our own feet so that we weren't being directed by the biggest grant giver and what our product should be and what our product should do. Because all that matters is who are the people you're helping? Are you helping more of those people? And like staying focused on that. What was it like to be at Y Combinator and to be kind of alongside the other companies in your cohort who are probably working with much different goals and metrics and just have like a very different ethos? Like what was was that like? (laughs) It was funny. We got a lot of admiration from people. And especially when we started generating revenue, people were like, what the hell? Like I really was happy that we could show a lot of people in that community that like nonprofits can be good at this. We can do tech well, we can do product design well, we can help people, we can find a way to be sustainable. Did you feel like you were subverting some aspects of tech culture while you were in there? You know, like you were kind of, it was like kind of like an inside job? Yeah, for sure. I think so. It broadens people's expectations of what's possible, but also just sets a higher bar, I think that like we all need to be, as a collective, as a society, we all need to be pulling a little more weight to help people out. I don't, I don't want us to just be like, oh, cool, like we don't have to worry about the communities we serve that much because, you know, Upsolve's got it. Like I hope that doesn't happen. I hope people see that they can in themselves, like in, the, in wherever they're at, wherever spaces they're at, whatever, they can find a way to help more folks. But we're also subverting like nonprofit culture in some ways because 
from the beginning, my intention was people should think when they think good design, they're going to think Airbnb and Upsolve. When they think good engineering, they're going to think Netflix and Upsolve. I also am trying to set a way higher bar for the nonprofit sector to be like, we need to do bigger and better. Like <laughs> there was a lot of discomforts with the idea of generating revenue. Personally, that was very hard for me um, because I was coming from a place where like, I feel like I see people that are being exploited, people are hurting. And like the last thing I want to be doing is making money off some person like that. But it just kind of shut down my entire capacity to think about like, are there other ways of generating revenue? Maybe there are other ways. Like that needs to be a discussion. Hopefully, I think like that example, giving that to other nonprofits can say, oh, we can generate revenue in ways that make sense. That, like we can have a business model that we find acceptable. That can fuel like growth and product building so we can hit scale and like really impact people in a big way. Yeah, it's interesting that ambivalence that you felt towards revenue generation. How did you get comfortable with the model that you landed on, which was getting paid kind of like a marketing fee, right, by by certain mm -hmm. lawyers? Because earlier you had mentioned extreme discomfort with this world of scammy lawyers where they say, you, oh, mm -hmm. you need an attorney and blah, blah, blah. How did you figure out what your personal comfort level was in terms of vetting which lawyers you would let onto your platform and taking mm -hmm. their money and making sure that the money didn't become so alluring that, you know, maybe you opened up that platform in ways you didn't intend? If we come across issues with certain attorneys, like we won't give referrals to them. So that was kind of finding comfort with revenue generation. But the interesting part where I think it comes back to like culture is there's all these small decisions that we make that can push people towards those options, right? So one thing I was very adamant about was if we're going to offer this option, it can never be by itself because Again, people don't realize they can file on their own. So we have to educate them that there is this other path. So in every moment, it's like, okay, the design decision here is we have to promote the self-service tool. It has to be the more prominent design. That's a design decision that happens everywhere. So I think that's like that's like kind of one consideration. And then the other consideration is, you know, we could start changing the criteria for who we accept. I think we, we operate with the median income. If someone's below the median income, they meet all the other criteria, then they can use the tool. You know, there was a conversation, should we, should we lower that? When is it enough? When's the right point? You know, there is this whole category of social good tech. And yet, in an ideal world, you wouldn't need an entire category of companies to mitigate the harm perpetrated by other companies. You know, this is something you mentioned earlier in the call that everyone who is working at a company, running a company, starting a company would think about social impact and equity in the course of what they were doing. Is this something that came up in conversations at Y Combinator? And did you feel like you made any headway around that conversation, which is like quite a complicated one? I think us just showing up in Y Combinator made a dent, but this is like far beyond the tech industry. I mean, this is just like a societal, cultural thing in the United States that we all just have to somehow like grapple with and deal with. We're, we're all just chasing, you know, personal progress and we all just want to be accepted and we all just want to be praised and we all just want to feel good, right? Like there's all these like human desires, right? And then in that process, in those pursuits, which is like disregarding the wellness of others and the whole way there. We're, we're all just like doing harm to each other. <laughs> and I don't know how you fix that within the tech industry. That's just like a broader cultural challenge. 
And so like we shouldn't need a category of social good tech. Like it should just be in the basics of how we all operate. How can we just do better for others? How can we just make sure other people aren't in pain, suffering? That should just be part of our lives. So I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> That's kind of where I'm at emotionally. <laughs> I think it's like such a good thing to just like sit with, like the discomfort around that concept. It reminds me of this interview that Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, gave to Fast Company a few years ago, where he said, basically, if you're like running a capitalist enterprise, you have to own up to the fact that like you are just causing harm. It's almost like table stakes. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, how do you create the least amount of harm. Mm. I sometimes I think a lot of companies could do well to like think about that framework a little bit more. Like yeah, start absolutely. with the assumption that you are causing harm in some way. I mean, it goes back to the equity concept in some ways. And I think that's why I'm, I repel from it. It's, it's like you are stepping into an entire structure that is going to force scaling and return on investment and the concentration of ownership into a few individuals and the entire incentive structure is not to disperse that there is a constant battle to make sure that that stake is as big as possible for yourself at all times it's an incredibly selfish pursuit there's contradictions all around because it's like if you're in a capital intensive organization you need investment yeah i mean i'm not gonna say i'm a saint i saw like okay there's a defensibility position here with upsolve being that it's a regulatory like there's landmines all over. People don't want to touch this. <laughs> and I'm like, perfect, cool, a defensible position, great. Like we can create an organization without competition. And here I am like talking also about like dispersion of equity to be equal, right? It's a lot of things to kind of just hold at the same time. Yeah, you're like, I'm creating a monopoly, but like a good one, a monopoly yeah, exactly. on doing good stuff. <laughs> because it's like, it is still a battle with like these other organizations that are private equity backed. All right. So let's say there's no longer re regulatory landmines everywhere, right? Other companies are coming for this. We're not going to be the only ones. So like there is a kind of cutthroatedness that we have to still hold in order to like handle these ideals, you know, these design decisions we're saying, like, how can we educate people and make sure that they're making the best decision possible and not just trying to extract as much money out of them. Um, but also at the same time, we know like those other private equity backed organizations don't give a shit. They're coming for us. That's why I'm like, you yeah, got best tech ever. I want to open source some stuff, but I'm a little bit nervous in some sense, because I know like once that regulatory space, if it doesn't become an issue, like they're going to just start copying us. <laughs> you have to be realistic about the situation too. I guess just the closing thought is let's not destroy each other. Just let's like take care of each other. I think a lot of people, I mean myself included, seek validation from the things we do. And I think it can lead us to harm others in society. Yeah, just shout out to all the people that are just trying to like take stock of themselves and their organizations and just like find where there's sins in their their histories and their organization's histories and like making them right doesn't matter if you're a nonprofit or not you can be that example so shout out to all those people and uh, everyone else that's on that journey Rework is produced by Sean Hildner and me, Waylon Wong. Music for the show is by Clipart. You can check out Upsolve at upsolve.org. That's U-P-S-O-L-V-E dot org. They're also on Twitter at UpsolveBK. Our website is rework.fm and we're on Twitter at Rework Podcast. 
If you want to drop us a line, our email is hello at rework.fm, and you can also leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850. 